Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly, for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. Tiny Hardy will come, now come and read our scripture this morning. You are a hard act to follow. <laughs> but fortunately, God's word stands on its own. So today I'm reading from Mark 16, 9 through 20. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they didn't believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. Many of you know my story with addiction and prison, but I don't know how many of you, and I've spoken about it up here maybe perhaps a little bit, but don't know about my history as an atheist. In fact, it was a neo-atheist that I was. That is something of an atheist that we see today that we think of. Somebody who, for the sake of science and pointing to science, excludes the need for God in their conception or their worldview. Um, somebody who for other than simply philosophical reasons, believes that science says enough. Science has said it all. And that there's no longer any reason to believe that archaic and primitive uh, believing in God stuff. In fact, I was actually pretty aggressive towards it. My mom and dad, of course, were believers, and I was not. And I would say things like, why did you raise me as a Christian? That was child abuse. 
I would say things like, not only is Christianity dangerous, it's delusional, it's a cult, I will never be like that person. Be careful what you say when you say, I will never do that, or I will never believe that. Apparently, because God is stronger than your ability to keep that promise. And I carried that in, that skepticism that I had in my, Christ, in my, in my atheist life into my Christian life as well. Even into today sometimes, this idea that I would sift through facts and I would say, well, yes, that's obviously true, or no, that's just, they, they're delusional, they don't know what they're thinking, they don't know what it is they're saying. And I was rebuked for it recently, not that long ago, I was um, with somebody doing an anointing. Someone had called the elders and asked that we would come anoint them, they were ill, that they would get well. This is one of the specifics in the book of James that James tells us that people who are sick should do. They should contact the elders, that they would come and anoint them and that they might be healed. So we went, and I was there, and the way we anointed them is we, we talked to them, we prayed, and then out of the Old Testament, there's something of a pattern for anointing. It talks about putting oil on the right earlobe, on the right thumb, and on the right toe of the person that's being anointed. And so we did so, and we put oil on the ear and on their thumb and on their toe. And as we were standing there, I was afterwards we were praying, and I was looking down praying at this person's toe, and it started bleeding from nothing. And we're praying, and I'm thinking, oh, they must have clipped their toenails the moment before we came. That's why it's bleeding. I prayed some more, and I thought, well, maybe there was something in the oil. It had an essential property that was uh, something of an anticoagulant, and it overrode and allowed them to bleed a little bit. Yeah, that's probably it. I'm praying. They probably stubbed their toe, although it doesn't look swollen. It doesn't look black and blue. So finally, at the end of the prayer, I said to the person, do you see your toe? It's bleeding. And the person looked down and pondered and looked up at me and said, it's the Lord. The Lord's here. My initial response was, come on. Are you serious? The look in this person's face, the faith with which they said it was so powerful, it was like a rebuke deep in my heart. I got into my car and as I went home, I thought, I don't ever want to be this skeptical person again. I want a, my default setting to be, I believe, instead of, that's got to be explained away. And the whole ride home, I felt the Lord saying, why don't you believe? Why is your faith so little? You know, perhaps I didn't see that sign as a miracle because I didn't want to. Because I had my vision of how things should be wrapped up, and I was too busy seeing that instead of seeing God. Are you looking for a miracle in your life? I know what's going on in a lot of your guys' life. A lot of you are looking for a miracle. A lot of you have broken relationships that you're trying to repair in the Lord. A lot of you are struggling with sins or temptations that you're trying to overcome. Many of you are struggling with physical illnesses that you really are asking the Lord to take from you or to give you the grace to endure well. You need a miracle. But it's amazing how our own refusal to look for the miraculous often prevents us from seeing the very miracles that God has promised to work in our lives through faith. And so today we're going to talk about unhealthy skepticism. 
unhealthy skepticism and how it prevents us from experiencing uh, Christ in our life, the power of God in our life. Today we're in the book of Mark. We're at the end. If you recall on Easter Sunday, I talked about uh, the sort of the book ending at verse 8. And that verses 9 through 20 are actually probably secondary add-ins. And I explained that the book of Mark ended on the women leaving in fear and not what we read this morning. So I want to talk a little bit about that a little more because I think it's important for us to understand sort of briefly how the Bible came about and then also why it is we're in the scenario we are in today looking at this text where it is. So the book that we have, the Bible that we have, is written off of manuscripts that are in ancient Greek and ancient Hebrew. And there's some Aramaic in there in certain places as well. We don't have the original letters or books as written by the original author. Those documents are called autographs. Autographs. We don't have autographs. We have copies of those autographs. Okay? We have, in fact, for just the New Testament, we have over 5,000 manuscripts dating all the way back to the early, early 2nd century. That means we have a document, a little piece of it, it's actually called Papyrus 52, is what it's called. It's a little bit of the Gospel of John that was likely written around 100 AD. Now think about that. That's about the same time that the book of Revelation, at the end of your New Testament, is written. And it's certainly within the time, the lifetime of those who had seen the apostles of Christ working miracles in the name of Jesus. Papyrus 52. Most of all of these manuscripts agree really, really well. There's lots of, I mean like 99%. There's a lot of agreement over all of these manuscripts. Uh, but a notable exception is today's text, Mark 9 through 20. Now, we have very, two very important manuscripts that we use that have been used to build the New Testament that we know today. One is called the Codex Vaticanus, which is, Codex is just an old way of saying book. Codex Vaticanus and the Codex Sinaiticus. And those are from the 4th century, so 300 AD. That's a complete book of the New Testament from 300 AD that we have, and we build our New Testament off of. That's the one that we sort of judge everything else off of. It does not include today's texts. Today's text, Mark 9 through 20. Very old translations. As soon as the Bible was written, it was sent out through all the Middle East, and translations of the Greek were written into English. Translations in uh, Arminian. Arminian ha Armenia has one of the oldest Christian traditions on the face of the planet outside of Israel. Okay, Armenian. It was written in Old Latin. It was written in Syriac. It was written in Georgian. And no, that's not southern United States. Georgia's a country in the, uh, near Russia, Georgian, okay? Two very old and well-respected church fathers, Clement of Alexandria and Origen, seem to have no awareness of this text. So in their mind, it doesn't exist. However, there's always a however in all of these things. A lot of the early church fathers do have this text as part of their understanding of the New Testament. They quote it, they talk about it, they paraphrase it in their writings, and so we have a tension. The documentary evidence in the testimony of other believers. So, out of what do we do? Most people agree that this is probably not original. But out of deference to church history and those who went before us who believe that this was part of God's word, we're going to talk about it today. Regardless, I think that there are some important lessons here 
that we can learn that we that to be frank are taught in other places in the Bible. I wouldn't be building doctrine off of this text. Okay, there are other places that confirm it. So we're going to look. It's about the dangers of unbelief, particularly the testimony of what other believers say and whether or not we accept it. So unhealthy skepticism. So what is unhealthy skepticism? Sometimes we don't understand what that means. We think we're being skeptical in a good way. We think we're being discerning. We think we're being critical. But in the end, we're actually not. So let's really briefly, before we get into the text, talk about that. Healthy skepticism is rooted in curiosity and the pursuit of the truth for the truth's sake. It's your heart saying that I'm willing to read and go and believe whatever it is God is leading me to believe because I want to know the truth. The truth. Healthy skepticism seeks that truth with humility. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been wrong at least one time in my life. So that's a pretty good indication that it's possible that I will be wrong again. And perhaps the most difficult statement to say, it's possible that I'm even wrong right now. The truth is, is if I have been wrong, I will be wrong again. We must seek that truth with humility, coming from a place of, I don't know everything. But God does. And approaching God's word and God's people in that way. Healthy humility is willing to change one's mind if new evidence is brought into the argument. This is so hard. I think that we spend a lot of time dividing ourselves from people who do not believe exactly like us. And we immediately get into this place of warfare. Where we don't try to understand their position. We believe we already know what it is they are saying. Yet it's almost always a characterization, a caricature of what they actually believe. Skept uh, healthy skepticism allows us to come to somebody, have a discussion, and be willing to give and take because we're both seeking the same thing, the truth. And for the believer, healthy skepticism comes from a place from faith moving to understanding. It's not, Lord, I'll believe you once you give me all of the evidence. Once I have the evidence sufficient and you've proven to me that this is right, then I will believe. Healthy skepticism for a believer starts with faith and moves to understanding. Now, unhealthy skepticism, this is like reading my autobiography right here when I'm about to say this, okay? Unhealthy skepticism holds to dogma to protect the sense of self. It says, I have to believe and hold to what I believe because if I admit that I am wrong, my whole worldview gets shaken about who I am. What kind of person believes what they're suggesting I believe? I'll give you a for instance. Before, I, at the beginning of my Christian life, there were times I didn't want to believe certain bodies of Christian truth because I was afraid I was going to become one of those types of Christians, okay? You all know what I'm talking about, all right? I didn't want to be the implication of believing that and what that would be, so I held tight, even in the face of clear error. I held because I did not want to believe that I would become, or I was afraid of becoming something that I didn't want to be. Unhealthy skeptics believe their perspective is infallible. They're right no matter what. And not only are they right no matter what, they're right in exactly the way they have said it. Okay? Unhealthy skeptics are unwilling to change their perspective, and unhealthy skepticism demands proof prior to belief. So let's, with that mind, when I talk about unhealthy skepticism, I want you to hear it in those terms. Okay? So this is what we're going to talk about. So if you'll turn with me to uh, Mark 16, verse 9, we're going to start at the beginning, and we're going to work our way through. 
When Jesus rose early, on the first day of the week, he appeared to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. Now, if you recall in 8, it says the women were leaving out of the tomb in fear, and they didn't go tell anybody. In the book of Matthew, it says that on the way, they bump into Jesus, and Jesus reveals himself to them. So this must pick up after that moment. Jesus reveals himself to Mary Magdalene first, the most perhaps unlikely person of all of the people who followed him, all of the disciples. First of all, she was a woman. In that time in a patriarchal society, a woman's input, a woman's testimony wasn't even admissible in court. A woman was not viewed on equal terms in the way that we understand them today. Not only a woman, a sinner, someone with a past. Someone with a past. Someone who had, before they were saved by the Lord, a sordid past. She's not only demon-possessed, but tradition has held for a long time that she was likely a prostitute as well. So someone who is, let's just say, not the most credible in human terms. Jesus revealed himself by grace, and it seems that he does this all the time. That he loves to come to the least of us. He loves to come to those who have perhaps the most sordid past. Perhaps the ones who come from places that are not good. Those who, like myself, were once atheists, who once didn't believe, who were actively opposed and rebelling against the Lord. The Lord loves to reveal that to those people. This, is, this gives me pause. Because when I'm interacting with somebody, the skeptic in me sometimes thinks, what are your credentials for telling me what you're telling me right now? What school did you go to? How long have you been a believer? Ah, but do you understand the Koine Greek and the Biblical Hebrew? Before I listen to what they say and I try to understand, I pick apart whether or not I should be listening to them in the first place, and I believe it's to my own detriment. I believe it's to our own detriment. The Bible says, out of the mouth of babes, your praise will come forth. That's a child who knows nothing. Yet God working through anybody, the least of us, can declare his truth and does declare his truth. Verse 10, she went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen them, of course, they did not believe it. Their unhealthy skepticism led them to completely discount what Mary Magdalene was saying. We would say, I think today, if one of our friends died and then another friend came and said, guess what, our first friend is not dead, he rose from the dead, we would say, no, we'd say baloney. That'd probably be healthy skepticism too, by the way. But we can't forget that Jesus, throughout his ministry, told the disciples that he would be given over to the Romans, be killed, be laid in a tomb, and three days later arise. This is not new information. They had been warned beforehand that this would occur, yet they still didn't believe. They allowed their view of the world and their skepticism of the miraculous to blot out, filter out, what God was trying to do in their life, the revelation of Christ in their life. The reason they were skeptical at that moment is because they were skeptical when Jesus said it the first time. How many of us, as we're going through God's word, as we're reading of his promises to us, as we're seeking to find God as written in his word for a situation in our life, are skeptical of the truth that is there to begin with? So then when God does appear to us, when God does answer or he desires to change our situation, we're skeptical of it. Oh, we rule it out. God couldn't possibly do it this way. We need to be hearing God and what he says. We need to hear the words of Christ and be skeptical, not of what he's saying the first time, but skeptical of our ability to interpret it rightly. 
I think that's how I wanted to say it. Verse 12. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. This is likely the road to Emmaus. As they're walking along with two disciples, Jesus appears as, appears to them in a different way, different man maybe, different face, I don't know. At least they didn't recognize him. And he expounded to them the truth that he needed to die and that he would be risen, that he would rise again. 13, and these returned and reported to the rest, but they didn't believe them either. That's strike two. Strike one, Mary Magdalene comes. Strike two, these two disciples coming in from the road, talking to the risen Lord himself. So first point for this morning, unhealthy skepticism keeps us from seeing Jesus. Unhealthy skepticism keeps us from seeing Jesus. The disciples had already made up their mind that Christ was dead. That he would not rise again, remember, despite his words, that he would do just that. Even in the face of multiple witnesses that come and declare this amazing truth, they still held to their belief that they were right and these eyewitnesses were wrong. And because of that, which should have been a time of excitement and joy, can you imagine the joy of hearing, had they believed, could you imagine receiving that joy that the Lord had risen, he's waiting in Galilee just as he promised? What that would have been instead, they doubted. They said no. They were skeptical, and they were unable to see or even believe that Jesus was with them. I don't know about you, but I think that Jesus still appears to people today. He is alive. He is risen. Now, we kind of tamp that down, and we say, yes, he appears to me in my heart through God's word. I go further than that. I no longer refuse to believe that Christ can be alive, well, and present here in the now, should he choose to that he is shown, that he appears today. Right now in the Muslim world, they're celebrating the, the holiday of Ramadan. It's a time of much spiritual activity in the life of the Muslim. During Ramadan, there's periods of fasting. And during these periods of fasting, there have been testimonies of people seeing visions and dreams of Jesus Christ, of Isa, coming to them and saying, I am the Lord. I am your Savior. And these people coming out of sleep suddenly and miraculously proclaiming the Lord as their Savior, making miraculous turns in their life. When I was saved, I went to bed late one night, an atheist unbeliever. And the next morning, I woke up a child of God. That's the best I can explain it. This happens all the time, and it's on us, it's incumbent upon us as children of God to be praying for our, Muslims, for our Muslim friends, that during this time that they would see the Lord, that his appearance to them would be life-changing. And so the kingdom of God would grow, and the Islamic world would be one. So, why don't we see Jesus more now? In the West, why are we not seeing him like we read about in the New Testament, like we hear about in the Muslim world? One is we lack religious faith. I don't say we lack faith because we believe all kinds of stuff, namely science, right? So do I. I was steeped in science. I was a healthcare provider. I learned to research. I learned to think critically. Science was something that I still hold very dear and I believe to my core. But science, like anything else, is skewed by our sinful eyes and our desire for things to be true. Nevertheless, we believe, we hold to faith in many things. 
but we lack a religious faith. The worldview of this country has thrown away the idea of the need for religion. It has embraced more and more the need for self-actualization, the need to be true to oneself, and the need to make one's own way. And because of that sort of religious impulse that's lost in the heart, they don't look. They don't see because they don't need. There's no doubt that the world here is full of unhealthy skepticism. We here often follow the science, yet it's the very science that proves something else, yet it collides with the worldview, so it's discounted. I say this one way or another. Don't think that I'm standing on any political position. The truth is, is we all do this from time to time. All do this from time to time. Perhaps we don't expect to see Jesus here in the West. Uh, it's out of context. We wouldn't expect him to show up. Elaine and I, years ago, when I was in prison, I worshipped with Mennonites. You might have heard this story. Uh, Amish Mennonites, very conservative, in a city called Root House in Greene County, Illinois, middle of nowhere. Every Friday night, they would come in and they would do Bible studies uh, with the men in the prison. And I just grew to love these men. These, are, these men were so foundational to my growth as a believer. So important to me. So after I got out and uh, I got married, uh, Lane and I decided, well, let's drive down to Greene County and pop in at church <laughs> with them. So uh, we, we go down there, and now Elaine was raised, as, or at least came from, in the beginning, an apostolic Christian faith tradition, okay? Suffice it to say, head coverings, head coverings. So I said, well, I'm trying to prep Lane on our way. I said, well, these are very conservative people. You need to understand, Lane, that these are, they have like the homemade suits. The women wear dresses all one color down to their ankles. They wear head coverings. She goes, it's fine. I know head coverings. It was funny, do you remember? Because what I was saying, this is so bad, I'm sorry, but I, she got dressed, I said, you're not going to wear that dress, are you? It was like this blue paisley thing. It had like this pattern on it. Now I know what the wives there looked like. I said, you're not going to wear that. And she goes, it's fine. It'll be fine. I'm not going to change who I am to make anybody happy. It's fine. I'm fine. Okay. So we drive down. I'm starting to get more nervous. We arrive early. We sit in the gravel parking lot of the meeting house. No sooner as we're sitting and waiting, my tension's building, I say, we should leave. Let's just go. We don't need to do this. She goes, it'll be fine. Stay. Over the horizon, I see a caravan of black vans, because there's no other car in a Mennonite life. There's a black car, and there's these black vans. Why vans? Because they have a zillion kids. So they're coming over the horizon in these vans. They come down, they pull in. Now I'm really, they get, first thing Elaine says when she sees the first woman get out, she goes, oh man, those are big head coverings. I said, see, I told you. They're like pious and stuff, you know? And she's like, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. So they go in, we wait till everyone goes in. Then we go in, and I'm met by a guy who I recognize as Gerald. Gerald walks up, he says, and of course we're like sticking out like a sore thumb. Gerald walks up, he says, hi, how am I? he's whispering, hi, may I, may I help you? I said, yeah, I'm here to worship. He said, oh, okay. I said, it's, it's Adam. He said, who? I said, Adam, it's, look, it's Adam, it's me. Now, I had just seen him a month prior, two months prior. It was not a long time prior. I don't know if I know you. I said, I'm from Greene County. He says, well, yeah, we live in Greene County. I said, no, I meant Greene County work camp, the prison. He said, you're a guard? I said, it's Adam. And suddenly the light bulb went off. 
Now, why did he not recognize me? I worshiped every Friday night with this man for four years. Why did he not recognize me? He was not expecting to see me. My appearance there was out of context to what his norm was. And I think this happens when we exclude Jesus from our own life. We don't expect Christ to show up, so he doesn't. And sometimes when he does, we don't recognize him. We don't see him. This is why, uh, not only that, so not expecting it, but finally blind trust of science and the scientific method, which ironically is built on healthy skepticism, just like we should be holding. This is part of the reason that we can't reason people into the kingdom of God. They don't want to believe. That's a whole other sermon. But Jesus says as much. Look at 14. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Two, number two, unhealthy skepticism can be rooted in stubborn disbelief. Stubborn disbelief. Finally, Jesus himself shows up. After they've discounted the testimony of the lady of Mary, then counting the testimony of the two disciples, Jesus appears directly to them. Was there joy and fellowship at his appearance? No. They were rebuked. They were rebuked. They ignored the testimony of others. They lacked the faith to believe in what Christ had said would happen. I don't know about you, but there's nothing more in this world that terrifies me more than the idea of being rebuked by Jesus when I see him. There was not joy, there was rebuke. Their lack of faith was more than just a simple denial or failure to embrace what they were told. It was an active and stubborn refusal to believe. More pointedly, the word here in Greek is actually hard-heartedness, sclerocardia. Hard-heartedness. In the Old Testament, it's related to another phrase that is used in Deuteronomy 10, where um, God tells them to circumcise their heart and no longer be stubborn. It means to be open and raw and alive to the truth, to allow the truth to be real to them. Now, this rebuke, I believe, is not only to them, but it's to us as well. We all too often stubbornly discount the testimony of a brother or sister because, listen to this, they lack the same theological framework as us. We say, well, I believe Christianity works this way. I believe God is like this. I believe that my theological understanding is this, and of course it's right. So then somebody who believes something else comes along and says, this is what I've seen. We immediately take it out to our own peril. I think that the Lord reveals himself to whom he chooses to reveal himself, and we miss out on seeing Christ when we discount the testimony of others for whatever reason. Sometimes we discount it based simply on unbelief. Ah, that. Skepticism. Sometimes we discount what we're told based on the implications of what they're saying. Sometimes it's pride. For instance, I had someone approach me one time and say, I don't recommend this necessarily, but it was basically the Lord told me to tell you. Okay, it was one of those situations. And I didn't listen because it hurt my ego. But when I look back on reflection, that person was 100% right. 
and I realized that it was the Lord speaking through this person. Our pride prevents us from hearing the truth. Our pride prevents us from seeing Christ in our life, especially through other people. And sometimes we discount it all on lack of evidence in our own lives. Well, I don't see Jesus day to day. I don't see Jesus working miracle in my life, in my life today. I don't see him, so then your testimony of it must be not true. I'd argue that there are other reasons, and we should be listening. We should be seeking Christ in our life. So where are you not believing where you should be? Who are you not believing that maybe you should give an inch? Listen to what they have to say with an open mind, with a recognition that you don't hold the whole body of truth in your heart, that our sin distorts the way we see the world, the way we understand truth. Who is it that you need to potentially give a hearing to? What are you willing to believe in following the Lord? Are you willing to believe in miracles? And if not, why not? Verse 15. He said, go, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all of creation. A man named Francis many hundreds of years ago took this to heart. In many denominations or theological traditions, he's held as the patron saint of animals. And so he would literally preach this gospel to all of creation. Oak tree, did you know that Christ died to save sinners? The sparrows, the Lord lives. He took it seriously. How would we take it? Well, I can't possibly mean that. He took what he was told and he acted upon it. He believed instead of being skeptical. 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. This verse takes some uh, explanation. I think it's important to know. It needs to be taken in concert with the rest of what the Bible says about salvation. If you read this verse by itself, you would be tempted to believe that baptism is a necessity for salvation. Okay, But there is a principle that we need to understand when we're interpreting God's word that Scripture interprets Scripture. So when we don't understand one piece or where it seems murky in one area of God's word, we look to other areas of God's word for clarification. We pull them together and we synthesize a truth that holds everything we've read to be true. Um, the Bible does not teach that baptism is necessary for salvation. It is by grace alone through faith alone that we are saved. Baptism does not add to one's salvation. You're saved by faith. However, the kind of faith that saves is the faith that issues in obedience. And baptism is a step of obedience to the Lord. So to say it another way, that if you're holding the faith that Jesus requires you to hold, that he requests of you to hold, you will be willing to do whatever he asks you to do. To understand this in a deeper sense, I think, or more in a contextual sense from Mark, is during this time, to make a declaration for Christ and to be baptized in his name before the whole world basically meant you were giving up everything. You were giving up your home, your reputation, sometimes your livelihood, even family. So to be baptized and accept Christ as your Lord was an earth-shattering decision. It's not like that for us. We don't hold to the same things here. Making a, you know, we might just look foolish. People would say, oh, they... They're brainwashed. They drink the Kool-Aid. But they're not going to take our homes away and our families away and stop you know, visiting our businesses and so on and so forth. So for here in the, Old, in the New Testament at this time, to make a declaration and to be baptized was dramatic. This is the type of faith that the Lord is asking you to have. 
that I trust you, Lord, no matter what, I'm willing to do anything. That's the faith that the Lord is asking for us. 17, and listen to what it is. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They'll speak in new tongues. They'll pick up snakes with their hands. When they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. And they'll place their hands on sick people and they will get well. These are what have sometimes been referred to as sign gifts. They are intended to confirm the truth of the gospel when it was brought to the people uh, in the first century. It's interesting to note that all of these were fulfilled in the New Testament. You can go with the exception of one. But you can go through and you can see all these various places that these were fulfilled. First of all, the casting out of demons. We see it in Acts all over the place. Peter, Paul, to the speaking in tongues. The day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came and visited the disciples as they were in the upper room, they began to speak in new tongues. Being bitten by snakes and not being hurt. This actually happens to Paul at the end of the book of Acts. He stokes a campfire. The heat drives a snake out. It latches onto his hand. He sort of just shakes it off and lets it go. And the people around him can't believe it. They think he's totally protected by God, so he must be a messenger of the truth because he did not die. And then healing. Paul and Peter and all throughout the New Testament were told that healing is possible and that God desires to do so. That leaves the poison piece. I don't know about it. I don't know where that came from. I looked. I thought maybe there was a tradition in early Christianity that held when someone drank poison, they didn't die. But I would say this. I would say that it, at least it stands to reason that we shouldn't read this as in us drinking poison. Okay? This is, I won't go there. It is not us drinking poison. This is us being served poison by somebody who wishes to silence us. So if you understand it in the first century, these are the leaders of this new sect. These same people killed our Lord. These same people in the end would kill and torture all of the apostles. And so I think it's possible that, that this is what it is referring to. That we needn't fear going out and declaring the truth. That the signs would accompany us, and part of those signs that when others are railed against you, when others are set against you, you'll be protected. When they drink poison, they will not die. However, if we leave it in the first century, I think we would miss out on seeing God's miraculous power now. Some of these still occur. Speaking in tongues, talk to a missionary. Ask a missionary about their experience on the field and people being able to speak in new tongues and that their heart language, hearing the gospel in the words of someone who otherwise does not know their language. Healings, exorcisms, the driving out of demons. I believe this is true. I believe that it's possible to construct a theological framework that excludes all of these out of distaste or a disbelief for what the implications of this are. Well, this can't be true, because if this is true, then I have to look at everything differently. I'm suggesting that we have the willingness to look at everything differently, and that we take God at his word. I mean, we worry about the implications. For instance, if I believe that healings are possible, then Benny Hinn is legit. Okay. If I believe speaking in tongues is real and still happens today, then my weird neighbor who always wants to talk to me and speak to me in some sort of gibberish is the type of person I should be too. Right? Just being honest. This is kind of how we embrace these things. This is how we understand them. It might not sound like it preaches too nice from up here, but let's be honest about it. Let's be honest. When someone approaches us who believes differently, we often discount what they believe because of the way they are, because of how they are. We don't want to be like that, so we discount what they say. 
But neither of these scenarios should move our thinking away from what God has made plain in his word. And that's the third point for this morning. Unhealthy skepticism keeps us from seeing the power of God. Jesus said that these signs would attend those who believe. If you believe in my name and you, when you go out and you declare the truth, you can expect to see my power working among you. They would see God at work. Jesus tells us that unbelief prevents us from him working. Matthew says that Jesus could not work miracles in Nazareth because they knew him. It's like, who is this, a carpenter's kid? So they didn't believe him, and he was able to work miracles there. The Bible says our faith has the power to move mountains. Is this a metaphor? I don't know. Why not? Why can't this be true? When we read the New Testament and we see all of the power and miracles of God, why is this some sort of exclusionary statement that we must understand differently? Why not be willing to be fools for Christ and to trust Him? To put down our unhealthy skepticism and say, okay, I'll believe, Lord, unless I'm proven otherwise. By faith, the woman who had been bleeding for 14 years is healed. If I only touch his garment, I'll be healed. Do you want to see God work in your life? Do you want to see him act upon the things that you've been begging him for? To work in the lives of those that you've been praying for, even in a miraculous way then don't limit God and dictate to him how he should work. I think of George Mueller on this. You know, this is a guy who ran an orphanage for kids, never once, once asked the government for money and never solicited funds from the public. Never. He built his entire work decades off of unsolicited gifts. One time the orphanage had no food. They Lined all the kids up. Let's go to the chow hall. Everyone sat. They prayed. Lord, thank you for this meal that we're about to receive. Ding dong. The baker shows up with bread. And as they begin divvying up the bread, ding dong. The milkman shows up and says, my milk cart broke. I have extra bottles of milk here. Do you want these? And it was enough to feed everybody. That's a miracle. Don't you want to see that in your life? That's the kind of life that God promises those who trust him. That's the kind of life that God promises to us who live by faith and not by sight, who are willing to believe and be fools for the Lord. That's the type of faith that God asks for us. So start believing that the Lord has risen, that Jesus continues to work in this world. He works through his word when you open God's word. When you open God's word, do you have the expectation? All right, Jesus is going to change me right now. I will leave this time in God's word different than how I began. Do we believe it? I would say no, because 90% of us, myself included, don't spend nearly enough time. It's because we don't believe that God will do what God has promised. We believe that he still works through his people. That the word of a brother or sister encouraging you or even rebuking you carries life. And that it's for our good that we hear these things through his angels. I believe angels exist, don't you? Don't you believe? I always think about that, be careful, because we sometimes entertain angels unaware. I read stories about this all the time. Stories about someone gets trapped, some guy walks up, lifts the car, pulls a kid out, they never see him again. It's got to be an angel. It's got to be an angel. Do we believe it, that God sends his divine messengers 
to protect us, to cover us, to go before us, and to go behind us. I do. Or do you even believe in miraculous intervention, something that is so just completely out of the ordinary, that it can only be God? Then start looking around for the Lord and His activity around you. He's there. The Lord is there doing it. Believe that it is there, that He is there. I got, a re- got out of rehab and I got my first pass to leave rehab. And I was so excited. I'm walking down the street along this busy highway. I felt alive and fresh and new. And as I was walking along the side of the road, there were flowers. And I just stopped and looked and there were bees all over these flowers. I realized in that moment, I had forgotten for years that bees even existed. That bees were even a thing. So I must have looked like that weirdo. You know, I was like, oh, there's one of those rehab kids, you know, walking, standing there, looking at the bees at the ground. But I was so enamored by God's creation. Didn't understand it at the time. But I was so enamored with what I saw. And remembered that this, God is working around you. Take the time to stop and look. You might be surprised about what you find. You know, we don't look because we're distracted by life. We're looking at everything else but for God's activity. We're distracted, we're hard-hearted people, and we're presumptuous. We think we know the best way. Lord, there's nothing wrong with this prayer, but I'm going to give you an example. Lord, Frank has this terrible disease. I pray, Lord, that you know tomorrow when he has surgery, that you guide the physician's hands, that you make the pharmacists make good decisions, that you put the right nurses in place, that you make the insurance non-issue, that you pay all the bills. Lord, I pray that you, why don't we just say, Lord, will you miraculously heal Frank because you can do it. Lord, heal Frank. However you want to do it, do it. But Lord, you know, we know you can do it. What if we approached every area of our life like that? When we were okay with whatever answer we got because we believed that the Lord knew best and he's capable of doing anything, anything. Let's finish up, 19. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. The disciples went out in their belief in the risen Lord. It's not, remember, we talked about this last week. It's not belief in Jesus' death that changes our life. It's belief in the risen Lord. The apostles cowered in fear at the knowledge of Jesus' death. It was the knowledge of Jesus' life that moved them to die for him. To die for him. He's at the right hand at a position of power and honor and they saw him. And one of the most beautiful statements, and the Lord worked with them. With them. The signs that accompanied them confirmed to the people that the message they preached was true that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Messiah, the risen and living Savior of the world, who's still working from heaven. He wants you to look for him working on earth. So when you're confronted with the unbelievable and you're tempted to reject it out of hand, particularly regarding the testimony from other believers, remember, unhealthy skepticism keeps us from seeing Jesus. It can be rooted in stubborn disbelief. And then healthy skepticism keeps us from seeing the power of God. Let us be people who accept that Jesus is alive and working in the here and now. Let us be people whose default setting is faith. 
and not unhealthy skepticism. Let us be people who look for the power of God in our lives and in the world around us. Because you'll find it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are far too focused on what we think we understand the here and the now. And Lord, we exclude so much from our life because of our stubborn refusal to believe. Lord, we pray earnestly that we would see your power working in our lives, that we would see you working miraculously among us as a church, as a people, as a world. Lord, this world is broken and only you can change it. We know that. We pray, Lord, that you would show yourself to us in a way that changes us forever, that we would go out in the knowledge of your son's resurrection. We pray, Lord, that you would set our default setting to faith and not doubt, that your name would be glorified and that we would be changed forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCM. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.